One of the big things we talked about today is body image issues. In the age of the profile pic and wanting to look perfect on social media, a professional photographer reveals some rather disturbing trends on what young people are asking for. Also on the body image front, we learned about something called muscle dysmorphia, which in simple terms could be described as reverse anorexia. Also today, we checked in with Clay Young, who is out on the picket line today as the PSAC strike enters its second week. And what's something that was popular once upon a time, but has since disappeared? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, April 26th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you to Greg and Loren for letting me take yesterday off after unlocking a bucket list item. Bucket list item achieved. Go to a Winnipeg Jets playoff game. Given the start time, I knew I'd be getting home late. And uh, even though they lost, what a what a thrilling, thrilling experience. And indeed, Loren, maybe a tear or two was shed uh, given the emotion of the evening. It's one of the videos that I have watched on repeat, not just yours, that you've posted in your stories to Instagram, but other friends of mine that have gone to the game, strangers that have gone, because I think there's something pretty special about just the uniting that happens uh, at this time of year and with the whiteout. I think it's really cool. And I, I like, I love the joy that's being expressed right now. Joy is a good thing, even though it can come crashing to a halt after 60 minutes of hockey, the, the, possibility of getting to do that again I think is what gets people sometimes up and going in the morning when you know that there are fun things on the horizon you're a jinx McGarry I'm going with that you're oh, you're the jinx yeah, yeah it's all fault. your fault okay. no did you have a good time like I know you had some pretty spectacular seats the pictures that you shared with us like were <laughs> typically the only the team photographer gets <laughs> pictures of that quality like you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I've ever sat that cold. Yeah, maybe once or twice. Yeah, uh, like I'm talking in 50 years, maybe once or twice sat that close at an NHL game. So, what was it like? Yeah, so it was third row, section uh, 120. I was uh, offered a ticket from a friend who has some uh, season tickets in the family, and I. That's why I sort of I initially turned it down like I can't go to an 8.30 game. And then I thought, hold on, third row in the playoffs. God, I got to go. I got to at least try to go to this thing. And it was pretty cool. Like we were right beside the Jets bench. And uh, yeah, it was neat being up close. And I know that I think I've joked, I might have even joked about this on Monday about the because I don't, I don't watch. A, I haven't been to a whole lot of Jets games, so and I don't watch a lot of hockey live. But the speed that is on that ice at that elite level of hockey is almost dizzying for me. It's just like, it, like oh, my goodness, these guys are like supernatural at how fast they are. So it was a really, really great experience. And to see all those people waving their towels uh, and being one of those people waving the towels and then sort of lamenting, like, my arm hurts. How long do we have to wave the towel for? Uh, but, yeah, it was a super fun, super fun time. That's great. Good. We'll talk about the Jets uh, throughout the morning and specifically at 8.37. Leah Hextall will join us from Denver, Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Leah's been hopping uh, from city to city, series to series with ESPN. In fact, was covering the game here in Winnipeg. I think it was her first uh, Jets Knights game of the playoffs for her. So we'll get her insight, her look at the Golden Knights. And Loren, we know there's a huge Manitoba connection. And, and Leah grew up in Brandon. Kelly McCrimmon, the general manager of the Vegas Golden Knights, of course, the former GM coach owner of the Brandon Wheat Kings. And Leah's pretty familiar with, with Kelly McCrimmon and and the whole idea that, that the Vegas Golden Knights have uh, four regulars in their lineup from Manitoba and one other player that they'd love to have in the lineup if he could uh, get healthy again, Nolan Patrick. So uh, that's part of the storyline here for me. Yeah, you can go to globalnews.cacjob.com where we've got that article up on the story up on the connections to Las Vegas. It's really cool if that's um, someone you know, someone you love. I think 
we should stop talking about them and just talk about the Jets. Uh, I just have I have such a hard time. It's like one of those things where you're so excited. Like I saw White Cloud's family in the audience. Um, Zach White Cloud, uh, Sioux Valley First Nation, and they're so proud of him. And they, Kevin Bergen did a wonderful interview with the dad on the weekend about going back and forth from Vegas and how proud he is of his kid and all these special Manitoba connections is super cool for so many. I totally agree. I still just want to want the Jets to pound them all. So, you know, that's how that goes for me. Okay, but, fair enough. All right, more on the Jets through the morning at 7.55. We've got our Wednesday commentary from Paul Edmonds. And as Greg mentioned, Leah Hextall joins us at 8.35. Also today, one of the big things we're going to be discussing, Loren, is body image and mental health for youth and photo filters and just all the the interesting and unfortunate side effects that uh, young people are experiencing as a result of all this. So this is stems from a conversation one of our colleagues had with a, a professional photographer who's just noting some really uh, fascinating things, maybe one term for it, disturbing, I think, is another about what people are doing when it comes to their pictures, the trends that are out there. And so all of us are familiar with having um, maybe an account on social media, maybe several social media apps, the profile photo you put out there. You know, it's important to you that you want to have your, your image and get across in a good way. We like to look good in pictures. I, I totally get that. But there are people who are coming to professional photographers now to take professional photos just for those profile pics on their apps. Uh, there's younger and younger people coming to get pictures done. Uh, this photographer is noticing all sorts of young people, you know, as young as seven, asking questions about, okay, fine, take this picture, but I don't want to look fat. Or asking questions about Photoshopping afterwards at a really young age. And so I think there's this generation now that's grown up having their picture taken way more often than we ever did. And are we aware about what that's doing? But how often we might turn and say, oh, I don't want that picture posted. And I'm guilty of that. I don't like it. You know, I, no one wants to look bad on social media. But what are we doing when we grow up in an era where the camera is constantly clicking? Whitney Cummings, one of my favorite uh, comedians, uh, talks about the fact that we're in an era now where you might have your picture taken several times a day, either willingly, purposefully or somewhere, you know, or unwittingly or somewhere in between. Uh, and we grew up in an era where at least I did, where you maybe had your picture taken four or five times a year. Yeah. You know, at Christmas time, on your birthday, maybe on your summer vacation. And of course, the dreaded for many of us school picture did your mom remember did your dad remember that it was picture day did you wear the right outfit did you remember to brush your hair that day because <laughs> i know i've got a few school pictures that of course define an entire year of my life where i look like a complete ragamuffin you can photoshop those photos now though like the photos from your grade eight i think you, we each have one with bad hair or my makeup was terrible or you, you know, the option now on even kids' photos when they come home is that you can do those touch-ups, right? And so it's just it, just something to think about. The, the, the bad ones are the best ones in the long run. Right now, we want to talk about the use of social media. Now, as the use of social media photo and video filters continue to grow, in popularity, research shows that the use of image-enhancing technology could have a negative impact on the mental health of Canadian youth. Global's Shelley Steves reports. So weird looking. <laughs> Mindy Moore is trying to teach her daughters that on social media, what you see is not always what is. That's not how I look every day. I see a lot of people using filters more now than like it used to be. And more fears as image-enhancing technology becomes more and more sophisticated, it could impact her daughter's mental health. I do fear the depression. I see that. I see it in adults, so I'm scared of what teens, my daughters, are going to be brought up and trying to teach them that it's not what they need to look like. Simon Sherry is a professor of psychology at Dalhousie University and has done research on the impact of social media exposure on youth. Exposure to these digitally altered images seems to result in a sense of poor negative mood, like symptoms of depression, as well as a sense of physically not looking good. 
Sherry says the unrealistic images have been shown to play a role in eating disorders, which is why openly talking to your kids about how to spot digitally altered images is so critical. We need to support our youth in becoming more savvy and critical consumers of these digitally altered images. It looks weird. Moore's daughters are already quite savvy. Sometimes they can make them look better, but most of the time I think they just look weird. And they just make them look like a completely different person. While some platforms now indicate when a filter effect is in use. Oh yes, it does. There are countries in Europe that have already adopted legislation that requires the identification of photoshopped and otherwise digitally altered images. I would say when it comes to Canada, I'd support a good and vigorous debate on that topic. I would not have noticed that. Moore says that doesn't change the message the use of the filters is sending to youth. I fear for their children <laughs> and all these filters and how they have to look perfect. It's not real. Shelley Steves, Global News, Moncton. The pressure, the reasons to use these filters, Loren, I think is something we're going to discuss this morning uh, throughout the day here on CJOB. And as the father of 16-year-old twin boys, I, I know that they are very conscientious about the idea of posting any pictures of them on social media. They they are super uncomfortable. And I, you know, I've not got to the to the heart of it, but it's certain circumstances where Mom, don't take my picture. Dad, are you going to post that on social media? Please don't. And I think some of it just has to do with whether or not they're looking exactly the way they want to be looking in that picture. And so I know it's an issue for young people. It's also an issue for others of us. Did you know that on Zoom, there is a filter mm -hmm. that you can engage? It's called Touch Up, and you can yep. make yourself look a little bit better with the help of digital technology. It's, it's crazy where we're at right now. And, and, then, and then on the other hand, I sit here as a 45-year-old mom trying to raise kids to not be as body image conscious, to, to be aware, to be positively body image conscious, right. to not be worried so much about what they might look, look, like, look like, to focus on health and strength and all those great key words. And on Monday, Brett, we took photos down at Canada Life Centre when we were broadcasting from there. And you said, which one of these can I post on social media? And I looked at them and then said, none of them. Those are, I look terrible in all of those. And so you're trying to be this person that says it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't always have to be perfect and, and, and teach the gen next generation that and that we're all struggling with it because we're, our images are just out there more. And when I look at these TikTok filters, for example, about how you can get, the, is it called Glamour Boost or something like that, where you can just take a plain face photo with zero makeup on. And then it will give you that Kardashian look where you got the perfect contoured cheeks and the, and the, the lips that are just nicely full and plump. It's, it's concerning because I don't, there's one thing about putting your best self out there in terms of like, I like my hair right now and the makeup looks good versus completely faking it. Yeah. Yeah. With filters, uh, I don't, I've never used a filter outside of, of a joke filter, like once a couple of years like ago. Like a puppy dog filter or something like that? Yeah. One, I, I seem to remember there was one where I was a, a pineapple throwing up pineapple juice. That was fun. And it, it, I remember that, was, uh, that was on my buddy's uh, Snapchat. And we were trying out the different like goofy filters. Sure. So, so that was fun. And then a couple of years ago, oh, I guess this is oh, four years ago already, there was an app that was that gained some popularity. I think it was just simply called Face App, where it, it was it, people were sort of blowing their own minds by how this app could either de-age you dramatically or age, like predict what you might look like. I remember that one. Uh, 20 years down the road, and I was shocked at, at how, A, how semi-accurate it was for the younger pictures. It also sort of made, like even the way it filled in my hairline, um, but I would never want to use a filter for any picture I post. But I'm the same, Loren. Like I, for the last couple of years, I've really struggled with uh, taking, getting pictures of myself and deciding whether or not I want to put it on social media because I'm not happy with what I see. And I know that's not healthy, but it's easy to say to another person, oh, don't feel bad about that. You look great. But then when it's your own picture, uh, we all sort of feel that pressure and, and I'm 45, so if you're a kid, you're a teenager, what yeah. sort of pressure are you feeling now? 
Yeah, so in our next hour, we're going to speak after 7.30 uh, with a photographer about what she's seen and some of the concerning comments she's getting from client, clients who are who are kids, right? You, you come for a family photo and, and you might be hearing it within that family dynamic or there are people who come and want to get headshots and stuff done for their business, which you completely understand, right? You're building a brand maybe for your business, for your position within a company. But then there are people who are coming to get professional shots, say, for their Instagram profile photo, like wanting to look that good. Um, because that's what they're putting out to the world. And I, and I have serious concerns about that because we're trying to live our authentic selves. And I think that's being lost. And then, and then there's the struggle to just say, well, wait, where's my line then? You know, is it, do I mean makeup less photos? No eyebrows tweezed, no hair being colored. Like, I don't mean that either. Right. And so the line might be very different for all of us. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. This next topic comes from from Mr. Hal Anderson. Thank you, Hal, for suggesting this to us because he spotted something online. People were talking about things that once upon a time were popular but have disappeared. And then that got us also talking about things that maybe are sticking around and you'd like to see them disappear or what would you like to see make a comeback. So feel free to join the conversation at 204-780-6868. The first thing that jumped to mind, and I don't know why, Mackling, because I never owned a piece of this kind of clothing, but Hypercolor. You remember those? I I remember them. I never had one either. Did you have one, DT? My older brother did, and I would steal it all the time because (laughs) it was blue, and if you touched it, it would turn green, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Okay, I got to ask, what is hypercolor? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, so it it, it would certainly predate you guys. It was a fabric that when it was exposed to heat, it would change color. So if you literally, if you put your hand on your chest, for example, Mm -hmm. your blue sweatshirt would turn green in that spot, and it was super cool. This sounds 80s. It was, I think it was nineties. Eighties, nineties, but it was confounding because okay, well, no, 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 it's always the same fashion the in, in a way. Is. No, <laughs> Forte, but I, the hypercolor confuses me because it always made me think: wouldn't you just wouldn't it just expose all your sweaty parts? Yeah, exactly. Oh, probably did that. Yep. Yeah, my pits looked great back in the day. <laughs> Oh, I mean, oops. Anyway. Uh, So feel free to join us in this chat. Something that was popular but disappeared or something you'd like to see make a comeback or maybe something you would like to see go away. So uh, why don't we start in our news booth with Sarah McCarthy. What do you think? So mine is the Tamagotchi. (laughs) I said this question's really going to show my age. Um, But yeah, I just remember getting together with friends at recess. You could like connect them all and like, play with what is each it? other. It's like a pet, like you would feed. It's like this circular device. A digital pet. A digital pet that you would feed. And like you could play with each other's friends, like you would connect with them. Um, and yeah, they were really fun at recess and they're no longer, I don't think. The ha- the Tamagotchi, the handheld yep. digital pet. <laughs> you had to feed it and, and yes. basically care for it. Basically. Yes. Otherwise, it would, it would digitally Die Mine would you. digitally die a few times. Yes. Oh, you could reset it. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's it. Because yeah, if yeah. that were the, if that were to come out today, guaranteed, like oh, that yeah. thing would be dead, and you'd have to yes. go buy a new one. Well, 100%. it's like a, a digital uh, version of that uh, experiment that some of us did in school, where you had to look after an egg for the yeah. weekend. <laughs> that's basically, I think, where that came from. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What about you, Derek? For me, it was a seminal moment in my my young life when I got a Super Nintendo. We transitioned from 8-bit Nintendo to the 16-bit. It was a great thing. Nintendo disappeared because they didn't react. They stayed with cartridges when discs became a thing. So Nintendo was essentially wiped off the map as a platform. I... Nintendo was so important to me back in the day. Oh, my God, I love that thing. So that, that one kind of makes me sad that Nintendo... I mean, there's the Wii, but come on, it's it's. Well, just the a- Switch is mega popular. Yeah, but I, I've so this is just going to be an old person talking now. But I just <laughs> recently tried to play Super Mario with my kids on Nintendo. I got into it when who did we have on again, Brett from uh, uh, for PNP Games? Right. Do, so we were talking, and I and I do, wasted do, do, hours. Do. I think during the snow day, I can't remember why. <laughs> You're trying. And to- I re- really miss the old. 
remote, like the just the simple, the simplicity of two buttons, not 47 on these remotes <laughs> yeah. or whatever they're called. Like not remotes, you know, um, the controller. controller. Yeah. Start, select, A, B. That was the way. That's yeah. all you wanted. Well, yeah. if, if you play now, and I think I've mentioned this before, <laughs> when I play my kids, Dad, do you want the old-fashioned controller? Because yes. they can set it up where all the other buttons <laughs> don't do anything, and you can go like to 1994 oh. controllers, and then you can mash buttons all you want. They don't do anything. Only the A, B, and the, you know, the A1 and the B1 might be active, or whatever oh, yeah. buttons. You can set it up exactly how you want it. Yeah, hit R three. Like what? That what are you talking about? <laughs> I see triangle, but R three. What are? What is the deal with that? And it doesn't really work when you're in the middle of playing NHL 2022 and you're taking the remote and you're going, "Where is that button? I want to do <laughs> yeah. a spin around." Oh, I guess it's too late now. Yeah. yeah, and it is funny too how we we become our parents, right? Because I remember just playing Nintendo. I'd be playing. I remember playing specifically Ninja Gaiden Two mm. or Ninja Gaiden Two that I had ra- uh, rented. And my parents came downstairs and they're watching me play this game. And they're like, "I don't know how the hell you're playing this thing. Like, I, I'm getting lost just watching it." And now I'm that person. I watch kids play games and like, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I can't do it. And I look at I'm the same, Loren. I look at those controllers with their 19 buttons and think, oh, "Forget it." Ah, oh, then they're like, "Turn around, mom. You need to turn around. Turn around. You're hitting the wall. Why are you walking into the wall, mom? You gotta turn, mom. Turn around." I'm like, I don't know how to turn around. I'm just gonna smash myself into this wall and end this game. Like I, it's hard. Forty, what about you? Uh, okay, well, these I, I don't think they're popular anymore, and they used to be. And I have two of them at home, and sometimes I just feel like wearing them. And that would be the fedora, huh? That's uh, classic. It is classic, but you you never see anyone wearing them anymore. And I got two of them in my closet. I'm like, maybe I should pop pop one out sometime and uh, throw it on. But uh, you know, it just I don't know if it fits anymore. Maybe if I wear wear like a vest. Oh, oh, find, oh. A, find a zoot suit that fits. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> zoot suit riot riot. Throw back a bottle of beer for change riot. Yeah, you know what? Hey, man, I, the fedora. You're right. Nobody wears them, but. Uh, doesn't, I don't think it's the kind of thing where if you did wear them, people would think you were weird for it because it's just one of those kind of, I think it's a timeless. Didn't Justin Timberlake sort of bring them back for a while there? And Mad Men, popularity of Mad Men, I think, helped to resurrect them. Best picture I have of my boys is when they're about seven years old. They're at a wedding, and I bought them fedoras to wear to this wedding. They oh, just, yeah? They look fantastic. Looks so. like a couple of good fellas. <laughs> yeah, they actually, yeah, they do have, the <laughs> photographer got them to put on that sort of that good fella face. What about you, Mackling? Uh, cargo shorts, cargo pants. I don't know if they ever went away. I refuse to stop wearing them because they are far too functional. And uh, I've been thrown off at least one golf course for wearing them to yeah. the golf course because they're not allowed at, at several private courses. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I carry a solid collection of shorts, sweats, and golf pants in my golf bag. So because I I just I'm a walking fashion faux pas very often. So uh, yeah, I don't I don't care about your stinking rules. Cargo pants, cargo shorts in particular are where they're at. Yeah, I yep. almost got tossed off a golf course too, uh, but they were they were kind because it was my first time there, and I just didn't oh. know I didn't know the, that cargo shorts weren't allowed. I, I learned- tucked, I, my shirt was tucked in. I, I had the, the the outfit was okay, but sure. The, Shorts were cargo. You just ah. reminded me of a fanny pack. You should bring that back as well. They are back. They are, they are back. Are oh, back. Yeah. Pay attention, Forche. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they are back. Yeah, I learned my lesson uh, the round of golf that I had to wear my uh, sweatpants inside out because they had a white stripe on them. And at the golf course that I was at, you could only have plain colored pants. What? And wow. I had a pair of pants that had a white stripe down the side. And so I do. So golf inside out. That was years <laughs> ago. Yeah, those are fighting words. Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Feel free to weigh in. Things that were popular but have since disappeared, or maybe things you'd like to see disappear or make a comeback. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Clay Young from Global News Morning is going to join us in a moment from the picket lines. And as Clay would say, we have some some breaking news, some breaking news for Sarah McCarthy, who just told us about the Tamagotchi, Greg. Ray at 204-780-6868 tells us Tamagotchis are still around. My nine-year-old daughter got one for her birthday just a month ago. 
Really? I still don't even know what this thing is. I know it's been explained to me, but I've looked it up and I feel like I've never seen it. Why would you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to get you one for your birthday and it'll be like, thanks, Loren. And we'll just stare at each other angrily. <laughs> if anything, it makes for a cute keychain, I guess. I was going to say, think of a, think of a, like a Game Boy Etch-A-Sketch keychain combination. Oh, where, the Game Boy. Yeah, that so- should come back. Yeah, that was. I guess that's a switch these days, but you know what I mean, like a more smaller device. Yeah, Yeah. I would go uh, even back uh, further back to the Coleco handheld quarterback. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) that was. I remember the first time I had a buddy who had one of those. You would you would argue, fight, wrestle, flip coins, whatever you needed to do to try and get your hands on that. That uh, that that game because it was so much fun in the day. And when you look back and you realize how primitive this was, it was like, wow, we got excited about real simple stuff back in the day. Feel free to weigh in things that were once popular but have since disappeared. And maybe you'd like to see them make a comeback or things that are popular that you'd like to see go away. In the meantime, it has been... One week since 155,000 federal workers hit the picket line. So these employees are in a wide variety of departments, Canada Revenue Agency, there's Agriculture Department representatives, federal courts, passports, a whole wide list of things. And last night, their union heads put out an update informing them that negotiations have, quote, ground to a halt, saying in a statement that the government has dug in on their position, shown no movement under key issues, especially wages and remote work, Greg. Well, so now what? Uh, Global News Morning reporter Clay Young is out on the streets hearing what workers have to say on day eight of this strike. Clay Young, good morning, my friend. Good morning to you guys. How are you doing back there? We're doing all right. Uh, We're working. We're here in the studio, but there are uh, at least 9,000 Manitobans who are not. Yeah, and many of them, uh, hundreds and hundreds of these PSAC workers in in Manitoba. I'm joined by Tracy Finston, who is a union spokesperson. Now, I talked to you just a couple of days ago. So we're... uh, we're going to move away from some of the noise here. Uh, has anything changed um, since you and I talked about it? It looks like th- these talks are, are stalled again. Yeah, that's how it does appear. That that there, I know there has been a little bit of movement in the background on, on multiple issues, but the main issues are still, uh, still outstanding, still sticking points here. Yeah, and for people who are not following this, but may soon start following this because there's a lot of services impacted. Um, what are the main issues? Well, uh, of course, wages. We want to be. We want to keep up with the pace of inflation. Uh, we also want uh, telework or remote work language enshrined in our collective agreement for those who are able to to work remotely successfully. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, one of the points here is your union wants its members to have the freedom to work remotely from home if they so choose. Uh, just clarify that for me. Well, it's not so much if they so choose. We know that there are jobs within the government that do require in-person uh interactions and 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 in-person work those who work with papers etc but there are many of the jobs within the government that are able to be done from home where we're either only interacting over the phone or or contact center uh agents and we have proven that we are able to work from home successfully in fact we are more productive from home than we are coming into offices Almost out of time here, but I do want to ask you, if this strike drags on, are you worried, is your union member uh, members worried public opinion could sway the other way and you could lose public support? Well, I'm talking about people who are worried about their tax returns. As government workers, we are already often at odds with the public in general. We want to be serving the public. That's why we are public servants. We, We want to be doing our jobs. And we want to get back as soon as possible. But we also deserve to be treated fairly. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's go back to the studio, guys. Global's Clay Young joining us live on 680 CJOB. And uh, on Monday, I was talking to a friend who's involved in this strike. I'm not going to say what department he's in. But he was, A, surprised that it was still going. 
B, he's concerned that because there are multiple unions underneath this PSAC umbrella, so he's concerned that his union won't get what they want, that they'll eventually strike a deal with the the main union and not everybody's going to get what they want. And C, he just pointed out, and it's been like, you know, Greg, we were lamenting it off hear about how April's been a lousy month weather-wise. So when you're out there on a picket line in this cold weather in these early mornings and you're just kind of doing this slow, plodding walk back and forth, uh, he said, I, I've, I've never been more sore in my life. So, mm. the, you know, the workers, you know, good for them for holding their ground on one hand, but I'm sure a lot of them just want this thing to end. Yeah, well, the, that may lead to an earlier agreement. You never know. The, the, the members might be saying, we're miserable out here. I want to be at work. Uh, let's strike a deal. And and so that that's part of the back and forth, right, Loren? It's a war of attrition to a certain extent in these negotiations. Well, it's wearing you down, right? And where are you at? Like, fine, you, you settle for something that you perhaps didn't want. And, and Clay referenced the support for, from Canadians for federal workers on strike and how that might shift it, the longer this goes on. And so Angus Reid had that poll out just a few days ago that you know more than half of Canadians said they supported employees' rights to work from home, but there was a good chunk, 36%, that were opposed to this idea, and that work from home is part of the negotiations. And then as we continue into the second week of this strike now, so day eight, the union did say in that statement last night that they want to keep the pressure up and then, quote, escalate our actions across the country. So what does that look like? Right now, it's picketing in front of the offices where they might work, you know, maybe crossing the street, slowing things down. But the longer it goes on, where do those picket lines move to to try to bring more attention to their cause? It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. One of the things we're asking you this morning at 204-780-6868, what's something that was popular that has since gone away? And one of the examples we provided was the 90s fad hypercolor, clothing that changed color based on your body temperature. Like if you... Put your hand on your shirt, it might change color and give you a handprint. And Ruth says, I received a hypercolor shirt for a birthday gift. I wore it once because it changed color in rather embarrassing places. <gasps> I never wore it again. Right. Uh-huh. Wearable That's what mood I'm ring. Thinking. Yeah, it would be brutal. It would, if you're, you know, if you're sweaty, it's gonna show all that. Like it's one thing if you're outside on a hot day and you start sweating. Yeah, but it's, you're sitting at connected. your desk and like your rolls sweat and then your arms sweat <laughs> and your pits sweat. And it's like, okay, I see that's a situation for you, A, B, and C. Like, no, thank you. Ruth also says, I miss flower sack shorts. What are those? I remember those. They appear to be shorts made out of flower sacks. <laughs> flower sacks or potato sacks. Uh, when would have I, I think I would have got mine in Vancouver, 1985. 1986? Like the same material, the yes. exact, like that thick, yeah. burly, like, isn't it itchy? No, it wasn't actually. Uh, it, yeah, it uh, it was a fad for maybe one, two summers tops, and they had uh, fantastical prints. Mine uh, had Canada with uh, maple leafs on them. And <laughs> I've, got a couple, I've got a couple high of pictures. In their closet, just like, you know what we should do? Cut these flower sacks open and make some pants. Hey, it was the first upcycling. It was the first environmentally uh, friendly uh, clothing, if you like. There you go. That's how to sell it. There's just some things I don't understand. Like, I know they're comfortable, but I just don't understand this idea to take a piece of plastic, make it basically into a rounded circle, poke some holes in it, call it a crock, and wear it with everything. Have you ever had a pair no, and I know I've put them on. Mm. I have loved ones and friends who mm. have them, and they're so comfy. I get it. They're comfortable. They're ugly. It yeah. doesn't matter how ugly they are. They're so convenient. They're so easy for going in and out of the backyard and back into the kitchen and slipping them off and slipping them on. Just flip flop it, man. They're more it's like a, it's like a no, rounded it's like a rounded no. sour flack sack for your feet. No, no, I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Loren. Bad fashion statement, tremendously comfortable footwear choice. When I was growing up, I maybe had my picture taken, I don't know, Greg mentioned it earlier, five, six times a year, there's the school picture, there's the inevitable picture around Christmas. I still remember I still there's a picture of me wearing this stupid yellow sweater that I hated because it was uncomfortable. I had to wear it for Christmas dinner. But yeah, just a handful of times a year, maybe the birthday party, you got cake all over your face. Um, but uh, yeah, that's about it. And I guess the, you know, the odd vacation picture, I remember wearing it. I can see it now. A picture uh, I was at... Uh, 
Canada's Wonderland and the T dot in Toronto wearing an Air Jordan t shirt.、Yeah. In spite of the fact that I, I didn't, you know, I cheered against the Bulls, I respected the Jordan. So that's it. A handful of times. Right. And that, I mean, part of that's technology, right? Like we had different cameras and they were, when I was really little, they were cumbersome and they got better with time. And of course, from film to digital and all the rest. But if you fast forward to, to today, I think the odds are we're all pulling out our phones to take a photo of something like probably once a day. It might be something you spotted at work, on the street, a selfie, a photo of friends. And then, of course, your kids, if you have kids, they're out doing things, you're taking pictures of them. And so we want to talk about what, what all these photos we're taking. Might be doing to what we expect of our image. And our next guest takes photos for a living. She's a professional photographer, loves what she does. In fact, she was in our building last week taking photos of all of us. Like we were doing headshots for hosts and reporters to update our profiles on our website. And it was in those sessions that she shared she's noticed a shift in demands over the years and maybe even clients who are growing more critical. Of how they look at a much younger age. We're joined now by Jocelyn Hebert, professional photographer and portrait photography instructor at Red River College. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. And thank you for taking the time this early in the morning.、Uh, first of all, your website, Reflections by Jocelyn, shows some beautiful examples of your work. I mean, family photos, you have individual shots, storytelling, and more. And, and in so many ways, it's what you'd expect from professional photography. But on the other hand, you've been telling us that. People are coming to you looking for photos of themselves, not just for, say, their family or their business, but for social media. Can you tell us about、yes. that? Yeah,、um, a lot of times they're coming for what is now the trend is called a branding session. So, in the past, that would be branding of your, you know, of your business, you know,、uh, whether it's from real estate or their own personal business. But now it's young people. This is a, a, a really Awesome Instagram profile picture. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's crazy how、um, what started off as more of an, an executive approach, more business related, even business posing, has related now to、oh, look, I just want to look super good on Instagram or you know, how, how they're using it for social media purposes. And when you add in studio lights or you just create the different dynamic look that the That their friends all have, and they make you make their image stand out. It just attracts the audience. So, Jocelyn, when I was a kid, it was the school picture. Yeah, I know, I heard. <laughs> My, <laughs> and, and sometimes you were prepared, sometimes you were, you were not. Definitely.、Uh, when my kids were growing up, we did try to do the pictures every year to,、mm-hmm. to update their look before they got to school, right? The giant one, the giant two, the giant three, all、exactly. the way through until four, five, or six. And, and so, capturing them and the essence of them and, and、uh, props, and sometimes I, we didn't do any of the costumes. Things, but in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, that did become a thing for kids,、yeah. you know,、uh, the Ann Getty's sort of、uh, approach to,、oh, yeah. to, and to the pumpkin. That's right. So the, the childhood photography. But now, what is it? And, and what, are, what is it that, that, that even young people are looking for? Are they looking to mimic things that they're seeing on social media in popular culture? Yeah, and you know what? It's no different than we were younger, and you'd see like the teen magazines, you know, Bop and Tiger Beat, and you'd see the movie stars, right? And we would all kind of want to always look like those people that we would pin up on our walls. But nowadays, they're, they're, on, they're on YouTube and social media constantly. They're looking at tutorials how to do their hair, and then they're capturing that with selfies. Even the way that you take a selfie now, There are apps that you can put on your phone where you can see what your camera looks like. And these, these people are posing in ways to, to bring attraction and, and also to, to complement their, their body features. But in saying that, they're so critical of their body features. And, and we all know we've taken a bad angle, or if you move your nose a little bit more to the left, it looks longer. And they are dissecting themselves、um, and what they look like, definitely. So, what sort of、uh, directions are, are your asks are you getting? Like, does anybody come in and say stuff like, you know, give me the Kardashian look? Yeah, give me the Kardashian look. And we all laugh about that, right? We'll be like, haha, but I know it's actually secretly true because that's what they're seeing. And even the poses. So, I'll say to them, let me get inside your head. Like, what kind of look are you thinking? And they'll shoot me off a Pinterest board that's, oh, yes, all the movie stars definitely. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, the bigger eyes, the higher cheekbones. They're editing things on their phone.、Um, it, it's crazy how, how they're like distorting their image or even just saying the common one that we always would hear is, you know, don't make me look fat. 
But that's not just women saying that. That's all spectrums that are people just, just I don't want to look bigger than I maybe am um, or add some weight to me. You know, it's always an adjustment. Don't make me look bald. <laughs> Jocelyn, How I think can we can do that, right? We, we all can agree. We, we want to put our best self out there, right? And exactly. I, I admitted this morning, like I've been guilty of saying, oh, please don't post that photo. I look terrible. Yeah. We all struggle with our image. But I'm wondering what if you're he- what you're hearing from, say, even that younger clientele, because, you know, kids, because yeah. they're getting their photo taken so often by even just their parents or school or wherever yeah. they go, I think see themselves, they see their image more often. And therefore, that maybe opens the door to be more critical. Are you hearing that self-criticism? Yeah, criticism like more I, from younger kids. Exactly, like I was sharing with somebody just the other day, as as young as seven years old, I've been hearing this seven, eight, nine, and and it's hard to imagine too. But some of these young people even have a phone, and and that was unheard of. I mean, we were reading storybooks, like physical books. They have phones, and they're on Instagram. I mean, thinking a seven year old on Instagram is quite crazy, but it's definitely by ten, eleven. Um, I was fortunate to keep my kids off of it for a long time. I battled with that with them at home, but that was part of the reason is I wanted them just to be kids and, and enjoy their look. But I'm sure some parents now are seeing when they even pull out their camera, um, their kids don't want necessarily to have their picture taken because they won't, don't want it necessarily posted or their friends seeing it. Maybe they don't look their best. And that's really sad, you know, because sometimes we're just trying to enjoy the moment. And it's not so always about our, our appearance, but because it's shared everywhere. I mean, people all over the planet can see these photos if they, if they chose to share them with them. You mentioned the fact that you're a mom. What are the things that yeah. you're seeing that are concerning you, not only with regard to your own kids and their social media, mm-hmm. but the stuff that they're seeing and the, and the stuff associated they're associating with? Oh, yeah. It's, and it's, it's that, that sex sells. Part, right my my daughters are 14 and 16 years old and they even just seeing what friends or what who they follow are posting would be things that we would not have been allowed to see when we were younger you know things that would have foil over it now it's norm it's not uncommon to see young people walking around in you know bikinis that were maybe my mother would have said inappropriate for that age so it's really hard now as a parent to see that and to, to be able to say, you know what, that's actually not appropriate or that's that's beachwear, not schoolwear. I you think know, we also, have, I was just going to ask, you know, I, I, it's such a line because you want to encourage yes, being strong, definitely. wear what you want, do what you want, be, be, be proud of who you are. And so there's that component to it. And then on the other side, I mean, what, what's being done with these images? Is it just posting so you can feel good and share it with friends? Or is there more than that? Because no, just- they're, they're public. And it's not just sharing with friends. It's sharing. And there are comments that most of these young people, they don't even know who these comments are made of. So it could be from people who these people could posting could be 16 years old and the comments could be from somebody who's 40 and 50 years old. And that's where that's where it's scary, you know, where they're they're getting that endorphin rush, right? You look beautiful. You look this, you look that. But they are so beautiful already. But and, and we're all guilty of it. I am. If somebody says, oh, Jocelyn, you look great today. Oh, I feel amazing. Right. So when there's 50, 60, 100 comments saying how wonderful you look, that's that's amazing for these young people and for all people. And then there's a day when you post something and there's no comments. Right. We've been there, too. It's like, oh, well, do I am I not looking good today? So that's where it's really, really hard as a parent, teacher, young person to to be out there, to be posting everything about your life. But it's definitely critical on our appearance now. And I am seeing that shift again in women, men of all types, but also the young, the youngest generation in elementary school. And I have had people who are that young say to me, don't make me look fat. And the mother laughed about it, like, okay, we don't talk like that. But I know it's being said. And that's coming from, that's coming from boys too, right? Not just girls? Yes. Yes. And it's sometimes worse. I find even the teenage boys, we all joke that they don't want to be in the picture, but they're slouching. You can tell they don't want to be there and they're uncomfortable. And a lot of it is their body image. They're, They're at that quirky age, right? Some are really tall and thin. Some are still adjusting from, you know, the, the baby weight that they're, they're trying to get off. And now we're photographing them and posting them at an at a, at a, angle that's maybe not complementing that feature. And before we go, and we do need to get out, but are, are people yeah. selling their pictures? Yes, they are. And it's, it's body parts. There, there, there's websites out there where they can go and they can sell, you know, whether it's nudity or not, um, they can sell for money. Yes, that is true. 
We've got, we could probably talk about this for another half hour, we but uh, we just scratched the surface. And we thank you so much for bringing some of this to our attention, uh, Jocelyn. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for the time. Have a great day. Jocelyn Hebert, professional photographer and portrait photography instructor at Red River College. And you can weigh in at 204-780-6868. And we'll continue the discussion at 935. We want to talk about body dysmorphia. Right now, we want to talk about how Manitoba Crown attorneys say their offices are, quote, dangerously overstrained. So we're learning this morning that they've filed a grievance with the province as a result, saying that large caseloads and pressures from a growing number of senior Crown attorneys leaving is making it increasingly harder to do their jobs. And when you throw in the fact that we're just seeing more crime out there, which in theory should lead to more court cases, well, you've got a potentially worrisome situation as far as they're concerned. Erica Dossetti is the president of the Manitoba Association of Crown Attorneys and joins us now for more. Good morning, Erica. Good morning. So what's going on? Walk us through a day in the life of Crown Attorney in Manitoba and how that might compare to even just 10 years ago. You know, I can say that, well, first of all, we have record high homicide rates. Um, This last year, we had 93 in the province. Um, And I can tell you, most crowns myself, I'm carrying at least 10, if not more, homicide files. On top of the homicide files, I have my usual rotations that I need to do. I've been doing detention review, for example, this week between 4 and 11. Every single offender who's to be kept in custody needs to go through a crown attorney. We have crown attorneys working 24-7 overnight shifts, morning shifts, shift work to ensure that our streets are safe and that we have somebody looking at every file as it comes in. However, we are lower and losing crowns at an exponential rate to all of the other provinces right now. So Erica, before we we ask you about that, how many many lawyers are we talking about here? Uh, So our membership ought to have probably, and so full-time lawyers, we're at least down, it's a very fluid number. Um, I know of some other ones who might be leaving, but right now we're down 15 Crown Attorneys. And how many should we have? What, what, what would be the, the, the ultimate uh, number? So prosecutors, we should be around 200. I can say we had a grievance, the same, some, a very similar grievance that was resolved in 2009 that gave us 70 additional prosecutors. We have never had that number. We are always down. And this year and the last few years, it's been worse than ever. And so, and I can tell you, a homicide in 2009 is very different, very different than a homicide in 2023. Why? Uh, uh, quite frankly, technology. I've not had a homicide file in the last few years that doesn't doesn't include phone dumps that'll have 20,000 plus pages of information, hundreds of hours of video and those sorts of things that were not the same reality that we had in 2009. And we need a crown to look through that and go through that and properly prepare and prosecute these cases. There's so much information in that. And quite frankly, we don't have the energy and the time to do that. And we are concerned that the streets are less safe because the government is not putting the effort into recruiting and retaining Crown attorneys. So in your news release, you mentioned experienced lawyers leaving. So are they retiring or leaving the province? Like, where are they going? Oh, they're absolutely leaving the province. Some are retiring. We just we just lost another senior Crown to the bench, and she's going to be going to the PAW. That's great. Uh, who we're going to fill her position with, I don't know. We keep having failed after failed competitions. We have senior Crowns going to Alberta, Saskatchewan, B.C., Ontario to make much, much, much more. And that's what our concern is. We cannot retain the crowns that we have. So when we talk about the concerns out there, the changes with solving crimes and then prosecuting crimes, the fact that you're down numbers, you filed this grievance, but you just mentioned uh, in one of your earlier comments, Erica, that you've done that before, promises were made. and And I believe in this most recent budget that more money was also promised to the prosecution, to the Crown Attorney's office. Is any of this making a difference if you can't bring people in? Well, and that's exactly the issue. Uh, the latest, uh, it was the tough on crime. And, we, and Mac is concerned that the government's not being very transparent. So what they're saying to the public is we're tough on crime. We care about your crown attorneys. We care about your streets being safe. We're going to put more money into your crowns. Great. What they did is they created this position in the guns and gangs, this firearm strategy, and they just pulled crowns from all the other Uh, units we cannot find crowns to fill the positions we have we have junior crowns turning down offers to come to manitoba 
Um, and that's our concern. It's just a shell game. We've moved senior crowns, so that's great. We're going to have very senior crowns in this firearm unit, but we're not going to have them uh, prosecuting sexual assault crimes or crimes against children or many other crimes that we have happening in the province. Um, so we are certainly concerned that uh, that the government isn't being transparent with the public. And if they want to say they're tough on crime, they also need to turn their minds to the person who's going to prosecute it. They can put all the money they want into policing. We need to have a lawyer at the end of the day in the courtroom who's standing up to be the voice of the victims in this province. And that's what we're losing. So, Erica, how many hours a week is the traditional crown attorney working? And and for how much money? How much money do you make? What's the low end? What's the top end? Uh, so a brand new crown coming into our office, and I have the numbers, they make um, about um, 80000 a year. Um, I'm at the senior top level of my level, and I'd be making around 160. I can tell you, we are in the middle of negotiations. Right now, I would be probably making about $90,000 more for my exact job if I went to Saskatchewan and over $100,000 more if I went to Alberta. Those are hard numbers for lawyers to look at especially with the cost of living raising, rising inflation. That's why we have crown attorneys going to other provinces. They can make so much more money and are substantially more compensated. And other provinces are looking at doing that. And our government just doesn't seem to care. Eric? There's the comp- Sorry, Erica, just the hour component, though. There's compensation is one thing, but do you sus- how many more hours do you think you might be working than, say, oh. your counterparts in those provinces? Um, well, I can say that, for example, in Nova Scotia, and we make probably about the same that they do. In 2021, I think they had 24 homicides. I'm carrying 12 right now, um, myself, as the Crown, as opposed to the exact province. And when I'm in a jury trial, I'm having 80, 90-hour work weeks. Um, this week, uh, I'm probably working about 50 hours a week. It kind of depends and ebbs and flows, depending on what you have on your plate. Um, and we do have Crowns working overnight shifts, those sort of things, 24 hours a day. Erica Dolcetti, president of the Manitoba Association of Crown Attorneys. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Hey, one of the things we were talking about this morning is the stuff that was once upon a time popular but disappeared or maybe things that are still popular and you would like to see them disappear. Like the other day, I was, I can't remember where I was. Maybe it was just outside here at 201 Portage. And this guy walked by with his jeans halfway down his his oh, yeah. uh, legs, like just barely hanging on. And he was kind of having to do this weird, like, sort of, I don't know, not a penguin walk. But yeah, this almost we- a waddle, right? Yeah, very much a waddle. And I just thought, like, that is a, a style uh, that has been around for decades now, and I've never understood it because it has to be the most impractical way to wear your your pants. Pants on the ground, pants on the <laughs> ground, walking around like a fool with your pants on the ground. You make a good point because I made fun of I made fun of Crocs a couple hours ago in this conversation because they look bad, but they're comfortable, and I know that, and so I get why people do it. Where that is a look where you think might look. I, I'd argue it doesn't look good, but whatever, you know, fashion. I would concur it, with that. It, it fashions its own thing. So if you think you look good, that's fine. But the comfort has to weigh in at some point. Yeah. Like it just, uh, the, the, even if I'm, if I wear jeans without a belt, because so that's kind of where I'm at right now with my, with my weight loss journey, I, I can wear my jeans without a belt. Uh, but eventually, hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to put a belt back on. But I might wait too long, so then I'm just pulling my pants up all day mm-hmm. long. And I just and I always think when that happens, when I get to that point, I think like, why didn't I just put on a belt today? Like, why am I holding on to this? Even with a belt, sometimes I'll carry something to the car, or I'm carrying something in from the car, say it's groceries, and my hands are full, and I can feel my pants slipping down, and so then. <laughs> You have to sort of widen your stance and try and hold up your pants with your hips as you're doing that waddle. That's certainly not purposeful. Nobody wants to see that uh, from me. Although I do make sure I always have the, you know, the nice gotchies on. Gotchies. You know what needs to come back if it if it's gone away is the slow-mo effect. Because I've now watched my third Y&R clip. You just sent me another one, Brett. Yeah. And it's Jack throwing another. I found two now of Jack just chucking chairs through windows. Different chairs? Different chair, different window. 
same amount of anger, but it's, it's the same toss that they slow mo at pretty much the exact same time for dramatic effect. And I have I have looped this one. I've got this one on loop right now. I can't get enough of it. I'm surprised by that because uh, soap operas never replay or reuse storylines <laughs> ever. <laughs> it's the best. It's like it's the same scene. And he's like, "You want a chair? Here's your chair. Have a seat." <laughs> Slow-mo is so great. Oh, man. One of the greatest rivalries on television, Victor Newman and Chuck Abbott. But right now we want to continue our discussion around body image and the factors which have young people stressing about their looks, their body shapes, and their overall physical appearance. Yeah, social media appears to be playing a pretty big role in generating this what might be described as an obsession to some. At 7.37, if you missed it, we spoke to a professional photographer in Winnipeg who talked about how some of the shots she's asked to take are simply from clients who want to have the best possible professional photo for their social media, not just their business or or whatnot, but just for their own personal brand. And so when it, we talk about that, she also talked about how she's hearing demands and, and self-criticism from a growing number of boys. And so in this segment, we want to learn more about something which is impacting the growing number of young men. And it's often referred to, Greg, as reverse anorexia. Our next guest's research agenda focuses primarily on the etiology, prevention, and intervention of eating disorders and muscle-enhancing behaviours among the underserved and under-researched male population. We welcome to the start Kyle T. Ganson, Assistant Professor, Faculty of Social Work, University of Toronto, and lead author of a a study published earlier this year focusing on the risks and prevalence of something called muscle dysmorphia. Good morning, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. We really appreciate this and and your research. Muscle dysmorphia, we mentioned also known as reverse anorexia. What is it? Yeah, it's basically the the pathological pursuit of muscularity. um, And it's called reverse anorexia um, kind of in in like kind of social circles um, uh, as more of a kind of a colloquial term. Um, And that's because people who have... um, Uh, muscle dysmorphia often see themselves as smaller than they actually are, which is slightly different than anorexia, which is where people are seeing themselves as larger than they are. Um, And generally, these people who have muscle dysmorphia or symptoms of muscle dysmorphia um, see their body as as smaller or not as muscular or strong as it actually really is. Tell us about what you've learned in your research. I'm curious, you know, how common is muscle dysmorphia? Are we seeing more of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's hard to actually pinpoint whether or not it's, uh, it's growing in, in, in size and sort of the population just because there's not a lot of research on like larger community samples. And so what we tried to do was do exactly that, which is we captured about 2,700 young people from 16 to 30 across all 13 provinces and territories in Canada. Um, and we were able to sort of estimate the, 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 the prevalence of the symptomology. So it's not a clinical diagnosis of muscle dysmorphia, but it does kind of characterize some level of, of symptomology. Um, and, and on the sort of measure or scale that we use that ask questions about different symptoms, there is a clinical cutoff point. Um, and so we, when we looked at sort of how many people were above that clinical cutoff point, um, and again, not sort of stressing that it's not a, 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 um, a diagnosis per se, but it does sort of have clinically relevant symptoms. Uh, we found that actually 26% of the boys and young men uh, were at clinically relevant uh, symptomology of muscle dysmorphia, and that compares to about 11% of girls and young women. So uh, one in four boys are really striving and driving for muscularity. Um, they're, mus- they're, they're sort of uh, focused on their body or the, uh, the behaviors they're engaging in might actually be interfering with their lives, um, and they may actually be really dissatisfied with their, their muscularity and their, and their body. What would you say to somebody who, I mean, I'm not downplaying this at all and posing this mm-hmm. question, but if somebody says, well, if they're, they're working out, uh, that, is that not healthy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. And I think that's something that in the research field and in the clinical space, I think we're really not sure 100% how to uh, delineate what is problematic versus not problematic. I mean, certainly people with, with clinically diagnosed muscle dysmorphia are experiencing pretty severe symptoms. Um, and that is includes with things like polysubstance use or steroid use, um, suicidality, things of that nature, depression, anxiety. So pretty severe sort of symptomology there. Um, but then when you sort of move down in the spectrum where they're experiencing maybe these symptoms that we're talking about, 
um, yeah, it's really hard. You know, people who go to the gym, we often laud that as very, um, you know, positive. We, we kind of expect a lot of young boys and men to en- engage in muscle building. It's very much socialized for them to do that, especially to display sort of norms of masculinity, like strength and dominance, and uh, especially in athletics as well. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really challenging to sort of de- delineate what is problematic versus not problematic. Um, and I think we're, we're moving towards hopefully figuring that out and, and and uh, answering that question. It it seemed to me, Kyle, that in reading some of your research and other interviews that you've done, part of the issue is the fact that those that that might identify or we may identify or diagnose with muscle dysmorphia are doing it for the image. They aren't necessarily uh, working out, as Brett mentioned, sort of to get healthier and to to build muscle for, for what would be healthy uh, pursuits, so to speak, is is that sort of the 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 line of uh, of of demarcation, so to speak? Yeah, it's certainly um, a body image disorder. Um, it's definitely, I mean, certainly there are sort of health components, but generally people who are on the sort of higher end of the spectrum of muscle dysmorphia are very much driven by um, uh, they're they're uh, trying to achieve a specific body, um, and again, that includes sort of using different supplements or substances, going through severe. Um, you know, workout regimens, uh, you know, doing different dietary practices in order to sort of amplify and, um, and sort of boost their, their muscularity. So, um, yeah, it's, it's predominantly focused on, uh, you know, the appearance of their body versus the functionality of it, whether it be like how much they can lift um, or even just how well they perform in some sort of athletic pursuit. It, it, it comes down to maybe some of the same conversations we've been trying to have for years when it comes to just what does strength mean? Is strength the appearance of those muscles? Is strength a, a weight number? You know, and, and even for females, you might you might be a larger woman, but who can run forty kilometers or, or lift more, mm-hmm. but not have that look. And we may, you know, redefining what it means to be strong is that part of it? Yeah, I think. I mean, that sort of gets to the fact of like kind of body ideals, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly people of all body shapes and sizes can run, can run marathons, can lift weight, can be active and exercise in their lives, and so. Um, when we go into like more, you know, I'm just kind of, I guess, speaking a bit about like, um, you know, weight bias in society, I think there is a pressures for boys just as much as women um, and transgender people and gender expansive people to sort of fit a specific body ideal. Um, and then, of course, that sort of pushes people outside of generally outside of a space of health and focusing on, so say, exercise or muscle building for health purposes or, or functional strength purposes. Like I want to be able to lift my groceries easier or, uh, you know, be able to walk with my dog and my family or things of that nature. Um, and so I think when we move towards the space of like wanting to change one's body for a specific body ideal, then I think it can run into sort of problematic spaces and problematic behaviors. Could, uh, could muscle dysphoria sort of be, or dysmorphia, pardon me, maybe even be a form of addiction, so to speak, like getting addicted to working out to try to, to get those muscles bigger or is this something different? Yeah, sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, actually, it's an interesting point because muscle dysmorphia actually is not an eating disorder. It's not classified as an eating disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Conditions. Um, it's actually under the obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, so you're actually pinpointing something that's quite interesting, which is it does have a very significant obsessiveness, preoccupation aspect of it. Um, and so that is very true. It is, it is very much obsessive. And again, people go through sort of significant lengths um, to, in order to increase and drive for that muscularity. We're talking about muscle dysmorphia. The expert is assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Social Work, Kyle Ganson. And Kyle, uh, I'm a parent of 16-year-old twin boys. Body image is a big deal. How they look in a Mm -hmm. picture is a big deal. But my Mm -hmm. my kids are athletes as well. And so at what point, you know, do I get concerned that that they're doing things for the right reasons? What should parents be looking out for if if they're concerned that that their children are engaging in these uh, activities for the wrong reasons, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's really just about asking questions and being very present and involved in the process. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, certainly you would you would probably recognize really significant obsessiveness with muscularity, um, maybe some significant sort of dissatisfaction with one's body or certain aspects of one body. You might see them kind of like body checking more often, which would be like looking in the mirrors or um, kind of like maybe pinching at their body to see if they have like fat around their arms or something along those lines. Um, so you might sort of recognize those types of symptoms. Um, but generally, I think just being present, being involved, like really asking lots of questions, um, being, and I call it respectful curiosity. You know, you're not trying to accuse them of anything or jump the gun. 
uh, as far as like there's some major problem and we need to stop all these activities and stop all this, you know, weight training and all that. It's not, it's not about necessarily that piece quite yet. Um, it's just about getting in, getting in their mind, kind of understanding their process. Um, I mean, a lot of this is in the gym community um, and obviously in athletics as well as a community for a lot of young people. So, um, you know, you don't want to take them out of that community per se. You want to make sure that they're engaging it in a positive way and a healthy way. So, um, you know, just making sure you really understand, you know, what's going on for them, asking questions, especially for young boys. Like we don't ask them enough about how they feel about their bodies or their muscles or how it feels for them to be in the gym or how it feels for them to be, you know, exercising. Um, you know, those are really important questions to have them have, have conversations with them about. Kyle T. Ganson, Assistant Professor, Faculty of Social Work, University of Toronto. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. And he is also the lead author of a study published earlier this year focusing on the risks and prevalence of something called muscle dysmorphia. And just as I've talked about the show before, but if you just need sort of reinforcement on the ideal body isn't necessarily to be super muscular and super cut and super ripped, there's a South Korean show on Netflix, and it was really popular for a time when it came out a couple of months ago called Physical 100, where they oh. take 100 of the strongest people in South Korea from all walks of life and all different body shapes and sizes. There, you know, you've got some bodybuilders in there. You've got a firefighter who is super ripped. You've got postal workers. And in the end, like the five people who made it were among the most, quote unquote, average looking people in the contest. Right. So, I love that. This is on Netflix? Yeah. It's on Netflix. It's South Korean, So, but yeah, I think you can watch it with a dub, uh, hopefully with a dub. It might actually just be subtitles uh, because it's not a scripted show. It's more of a you know, reality-based show. Hmm. But it's incredible. And uh, and it, I think it, I would, wouldn't suggest it's required viewing, but I, I think it really would help anybody who thinks, like, I have to look a certain way to be seen as elite and this show I think kind of just blew that up because all the guys who were super ripped maybe some of them made it pretty far but uh, they didn't end up winning that so I think we've learned over the years Loren that that healthy bodies come in all shapes and sizes I'm thinking to you know uh days at in Minnedosa at the feed mill where you know you'd have tall skinny guys working there that could haul just huge bags of feed and they're not necessarily like the guys are the most you would expect and so strong and and other kinds of ways i'm thinking of a girlfriend who always struggled with her weight and how she looked and would kick my butt in any gym class we ever did you know and it didn't size was not the factor the muscles the look the shape the strength that comes from different body types i think we that i think watching that kind of show is a perfect example of explaining that how you look doesn't translate to how you might perform and uh and again just make so if you are seeing those warning signs just watch out for that Uh, i'm just i when i was in my early 20s one of our friends from high school who had gotten big into bodybuilding he died in his sleep Mm -hmm. because he was mixing substances that he Mm -hmm. shouldn't have been and uh because he wanted to just look as big and strong as possible so um question of the day by the way at cjob.com do you have body image issues or does someone you care about 26 percent say yes i do Four percent say yes, a loved one does. Nine percent say both of the above. Sixty-two percent so far say no. Cast your vote, cjob.com.